You're listening to The Ace Podcast with myself, Pete Pavides, and joining me today is a writer whose work spans over three decades in all sorts of disciplines, from the music journalism which gave him his first break back in 1983, when then NME editor Neil Spencer invited him to work for the paper, to his more recent achievements as an Emmy Award-winning comedy writer. His TV work includes Veep, Brass Eye, The Thick of It, uh, Harry Hill's TV Burp, and his 2013 adaptation of Ian R. McLeod's short story Snodgrass, in which John Lennon is found alive and well living in Birmingham. He's also a prolific author, not only of novels such as The Mule and Sparks and, coming shortly, All My Colours, but also music books such as his hugely entertaining Beatles tome, Revolution, The Making of the Beatles, White Album, and biographies such as Dress to Kill, the only official biography of Eddie Izzard. Some woman called Catelyn Moran once claimed that he has a medical condition, (laughs) he has a medical condition whereby he literally cannot be unfunny. No pressure then for the next hour. David Quantic. Hello. Hello. That was a lovely introduction and made me feel old. It was entirely factual. I don't it think was you... Actually, yeah, the, it's, no, there was an error, but we won't go into that now. No, no, please do. Because Eddie Izzard has now really annoyingly written his own autobiography. <laughs> but he, wrote, he dictated the last one to me, which was nice. He wrote a new one and he apologised to me, which was nice. And also... The biographies, I only wrote one, but brilliantly on my Wikipedia page, owing to a boring process, I'm credited with six comedians' biographies, because <laughs> I was down to write them. Oh, so you were due to write, well, well how, this seems a bit reckless, how did five upcoming <laughs> drop out of your schedule? You know how it is. Um, <laughs> a company I had a, a deal with, we're going to do these books, and it never happened. But it was kind of sad because one of them was Bill Hicks and his mother emailed me to basically say, please don't write this book. There's enough about, you know, Bill and all this kind of thing. Wow. So I was able to email her and say, I'm, I'm not. But, oh, that's you know, nice. It was nice, but it kind of, I just like having all these fake books on my page because I'd read that John Cleese, every year he was asked to be in Who's Who and he'd always make up a book he'd written. <laughs> but he gave up because no one ever noticed. Well, it's 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 humbling, isn't it? Just how how many of these things sort of go into. I can make it a bit worse if you like. I, can, sure. I was also going to mention that you were so, someone who did a poll on Twitter a few years ago, said that you were the the forty ninth worst person on Twitter. Yeah, that was good. Um, there are some strange people. Forty ninth. Who was the fiftieth? I don't know, but I was reading about it, and then then they went on to cite a couple of really good jokes you'd made on Twitter by way of illustration of your annoyingness, so, including one about uh, Ai Wei. <laughs> Ai Weiwei is that how you say his name? The artist. It, the joke doesn't work unless you say it like that. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to? Do you remember the joke? Do you want to repeat? I can't it? remember it. It's um. You do it. <clears throat> oh, I'm trying to remember it. <laughs> it was something. Of, the punchline was a Weiwei station. Yeah, it doesn't bear repeating. Okay. I can see why I was 49 now, mildly. It's a, oh, dear, let's not go there. Um, okay, so, um, well, let's start. Let's, let's briefly dwell on the, uh, on the beginning. So you, mm. you, you did what many people, sort of my, my generation, fantasise about, which was you, you, were, you, were, you were asked to write for the NME after writing them a letter telling, him, telling them all, about all the ways in which the enemy the fell short of your sort of standards. Yeah, it was a bit like Facebook, what I do on Facebook now, in that it was a really passive-aggressive letter asking for attention in a negative way. And I wrote to Neil Spencer, the then editor, <clears throat> Matt Snow, 
who's a friend of mine, had written a review of a Bob Seger album, and for some reason this enraged me. And I remember writing, Bob Seger is not enough, in block <laughs> cap, and it was obviously an attempt to get work. How old were you? <laughs> yeah, 21, I think. Okay. And he wrote back saying, you know, well, if you think you can do better, come in. And I went in, and it was Danny Baker's leaving party. Wow. I just remember seeing Danny sat on the desk drinking and everyone around him just laughing because he was very funny. And then Neil Spencer gave me a Peter Tosh album because I told him I liked reggae because I knew enough to tell Neil Spencer that I liked reggae because mm, he loves mm. reggae. Do you know the Neil Spencer sandwich story? Don't think so. Neil Spencer's a lovely man. He's a former teacher from Northampton. Um, really lovely man. Loves reggae. Danny Baker claims that once at lunchtime, Neil said to him, I and I step forward for a sandwich now. <laughs> I don't know if this is true or not, but Neil's a very funny man. So he may have done it. But yeah, after that, <clears throat> like all of us who've been in music journalism, I went to the then Virgin Megastore, bought an NME, because I didn't quite understand free ones. No. And for the only time in my life, I was on the lead album page. It was me, Neil and Julie Birchall. It was a great start. What, were, what and what was the album? It was Peter Tosh, Mama Africa, and I actually have this. I actually have the copy, but the only thing I have from the past, a 1983 promotional copy of a reasonable Peter Tosh album, which has got a cover of Johnny Be Good on it. Oh, I love that version of Johnny Be Good. Really, John Martin did a very similar version of it. I don't. <clears throat> yeah, I, I. I've never really. I've heard John Martin's version, but I, the the version I because I know that version, the Johnny B, version of Johnny B, the Peter Tosh one, like the back of my hand. The oh, reason, really? The reason is because he 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 did it on Rasmataz. Do you remember? That? <laughs> <laughs> that was out of left. I wasn't. Exp I remember Rasmataz. It was for people who don't remember Rasmataz. It was a it was a music program, sort of for children, I guess. It was on at four twenty on a Tuesday afternoon, and it was presented by a man called Alistair Peary, and it, it featured the young Gillian Tailforth. Do you remember that Gillian uh, Tailforth on it? No, I mean I'm a bit older than you, so while I was writing for the Enemy, you were watching Peter Tosh <laughs> on Rasmataz. And he was, it was just, we just bought a video recorder, so I was just recording everything zealously. And so and then Peter Tosh came on and did Johnny. If I, I think I heard that version of Johnny Be Good before the original version. That it, you can actually tell people's age by whose version of a song. It's like for my generation, Sid Vicious's Something Else is the definitive yes, something yes, else. Yeah. And I still prefer it, you know, and that and Come On Everybody too. The idea that someone else has even heard Peter Tosh's version of Johnny Be Good, because obviously my review wasn't that good. It's, it's the best thing on that album. I don't recall the album being that good, to be honest. It's a bit, it's a little bit mid-80s island, even though it's, I don't yeah. think it's on island. Yeah, Mama Africa's a good track. Right. I think there's a remake of Magadog on it, which is not something oh, I ever thought I'd say. Yeah, Magadog's great. It is funny, that, isn't it? The sort of... Um you know, often you're right, but you know, I think I still slightly prefer the Waterboys version of "Sweet Thing" over Van Morrison's, which I know is a sacrilegious thing to say. And yet, um, I think you know, and I sound like a complete tosser if I say that um, I prefer Lee Perry's version of "Police and Thieves." Oh no, it's not really. It's Junior Mervyn's version of "Police and Thieves" over the Clash because it was the first one I heard. I was mm. too young to hear the Clash's version, but there you go. But people well, swear by the Clash's version, don't they? Yeah, it's, it's not. It's weird when you go back. I'd love to hear it now with someone like me saying, "Listen to this. This is reggae," and I'm going, "No, it isn't. It's Mot the Hoople <laughs> on seventy-eight. Ang, <laughs> ang, ang." 
The Clash did it. It's weird because about five years after that, every band from like Stiff Little Fingers, they'd do a reggae cover that would suddenly go, there, two, three, four, nah, nah, nah. I know. And, you know, and, and reggae artists, by and large, were very gracious about the fact, the, the fact that punk rockers liked reggae and were all trying to do their version of it. Not very well. But, you know, obviously Bob Marley even went to the trouble of writing a song about it called Punky Reggae Party. Which is very nice of him, I thought. It's very bizarre because, as has been pointed out, um, reggae and punk are completely opposite kinds of music. It would be like if heavy metal fans were massively into Barry White. And every time you went to see Iron Maiden, they did You're My First, My Last, My Everything really badly. <laughs> That's exactly what it's like. You're absolutely right. So you did a... Um, you did a your test review was about ABC, wasn't it? God, yeah. Um, I wrote a review of the lexicon of love because that's where my head was at i was total for what melody maker called new pop i don't think we mm. said that at the enemy no you wouldn't no we didn't say things like that but yeah i was a total paul morley ian penman fan and i still love lexicon of love though it sounds a little hollow now like a boiled sweet sucked but yeah i reviewed that i wish i don't have it sadly but it probably was a whimsical review full of capital letters because i was a bit kind of like that then. Well, you, you know, you are like that when you're younger, aren't you? You know, declamatory, I think, is the one. Yeah, a lot of shouting. And, you know, you sort of, uh, that's why it's great, you know, you know, if one one of the kind of, oh, one of the great things about finally becoming a parent is that it kind of helps to ease you out of that sort of all or nothing declamatory sort of uh, belief in the, 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 the sort of, importance of pop music superseding everything else so if i sort of think about the things that i used to get incredibly angry about in my late teens and early 20s it sort of slightly bewilders me now yeah i mean i love bob seeger now for example yeah i've got most of his albums even the even the bland ones right. so but yeah you try and be less well i i don't know it's slightly in me to be a bit aggressive and confrontational mm. in that sort of thing and I do sometimes think trying to imagine my dad at 57 suddenly shouting Nat King Cole was great and hitting someone it just doesn't wouldn't have happened no no I mean you know what would we think about I mean you know I, I'd sort of probably would like to observe that person from a distance but I'm not necessarily sure if I want to go down the pub with them every year uh, every week but um so you sort of um I was kind of so I read. I mean, so I remember a lot of your writing, but I also kind of read read some. It's sort of been advance of today, and there was some. There was some great. I read a. There was an early appreciation of the Shangri Las, which was oh just, yeah, was fantastic, and it was almost read like something maybe you would have written anyway, but sort of submitted to enemy, you know, just because you could almost. Well, that was the thing about the enemy at this time that the music press was very fluid. In the era between Paul Morley and Ian Penman and later on people like Stuart Cosgrove, I don't want to get too technical, but you could do anything. I learned a lot of comedy there mm. because I would do things like I'd write the gossip column in the style of Flan O'Brien, which sounds pretentious and it was, but it was just, let's see what we can do. But that's what, wasn't that what your, your, your sort of humour stuff, your, your funny stuff in NME wasn't what made Armando Yunichi kind of notice you? Yeah, that was... I found that letter the other day from Armando to me and Stephen Wells, Swells, basically saying, I'm going to do a sort of news current affair type parody show. I wonder if you would like to contribute to it with the implication that we'd be looking after the pop side. But yeah, Stephen Wells and I wrote a column called Culture Vulture, 
which was, as the name suggests, kind of mockery of popular culture. And what was brilliant was it was mocking the kind of thing that was in the NME. Mm. So we would mock Morrissey, we would mock Marquis Smith, we would make jokes about Steve Albini because we hated the fact he had a band called Rape Man, all that kind of thing. And we did classical music once, and that was the piece that got us the gig with Armando, that we wrote a whole thing about classical music and how it was basically played on tiny guitars and giant guitars that you pushed a piece of wood across. And thinking about it, Armando is a classical music fan, so maybe that was his way in. Yeah. And then, yeah, Stephen and I both wrote on On The Hour, and we both wrote on The Day Today, and we wrote a lost radio show with Chris Morris called The Lighthouse Keeper. Lost as in never aired? Lost as in we wrote a script, and we, annoyingly, I have friends who are massive comedy archivists, and they yeah. want it. Annoyingly, I found the stuff that me and Stephen had written, but I can't find Chris's stuff. It was insane. It was basically a lighthouse keeper who was going mad and was assailed by... Chris wrote The Seagulls. He wrote horrible monster seagulls who were taunting the lighthouse keeper. Well, so the seagulls had dialogue? Yeah, it was brilliant, mad, fractured dialogue. So how did, how did sort of Chris enter the pit just through on the hour? Yeah, we'd been, we were quite friendly. Chris, you know, liked music a great deal, as you know. Yeah. And also, I think he fancied Swells' his girlfriend, because he used to come round to Swells' place, which was in Wembley, and we'd have lunch and talk, and his girlfriend would be there, and Chris would be quite happy. And... Yeah, I wish I still had it. Probably be worth pounds now. But I'm sure. Well, it's is it definitely lost? Is it not anywhere? I bet he's got it. What but, Chris? Yeah, I bet he's got it somewhere. Okay, um, <clears throat> and so you. So well, that's. I guess you know. The, I guess the 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 thing is here, and actually, you sort of you touch on it in in your books about writing, um, which is uh, the important thing is to just write and write and write. And just almost by the law of averages, well, A, you get better, and B, you know, every, if we can borrow from our friend Sting, every <laughs> every piece of writing is like a message in a bottle, and you just don't know when your 100 million bottles are going to wash upon the shore. No, Sting was right about that. I thought you were going to go with every breath you take then, but <laughs> yeah, it's very hard to get worse. I think there's a writer called Dean Koontz who writes sort of stub, sub Stephen King novels. I think he's the only one who gets worse with his writing. <laughs> There's a famous joke on Family Guy, I'm digressing slightly, yeah. when a writer gets run over and Brian the dog jumps out and goes, oh my God, Stephen King. Oh God, it's only Dean Koontz. <laughs> but yeah, it's really hard to get worse if you write. I mean, it helps to have editors. It helps to have people looking over your shoulder. I mean, I learned so... I, re I only did it once, complained about editors, but I really hate it when certain people go on about editors and publish their clever emails to editors because editors are like your mum and dad. I hate it too. They just they it's, teach you to write. It's really polite and also it's, it's really unwise because it's, it's, I feel like these people have never... St obviously, if you knew what mistakes you were in your copy as you filed it, you wouldn't have made them. So you will die not knowing how many mistakes were corrected. <laughs> yeah. And so even if we don't think we have any occasion to sort of thank uh, sub-editors, we almost certainly do. We just don't know what the mistakes were. It is like doctors, invisible doctors flying around you, healing as you go. And I just learned so many things, like always cut, cut your first paragraph and cut your last paragraph. Do that just to see what it's like. Yeah, but you, but, you know, you, sometimes you just have to write the paragraph in order to know that actually that's 
Why is that? I just I will never understand why I just can't just go straight to the second paragraph and save myself a whole load of bother. Well, I'll tell you a weird fact which is almost related. I read once, you know Tom and Jerry, the cartoons? You know that Tom the cat does this extraordinary scream, kind of, Arr! I discovered what they did was they recorded one of the writers screaming, and then they cut the top off the scream and the end off the scream. <laughs> and it's the abruptness. It's like with a record that starts with a chorus. You're dropped into it. It's very true, yeah. So instead of going, here I am with photographer Derek Ridgers in New York, it's a sunny day, you just go... There's a piece by Jack Barron where he interviews Nick Cave and it's all gone wrong. And he starts off, bang, Nick Cave punches me in the face. Thud, he kicks me in the stomach. And it's great because you don't give a... You're not the least interested in the music of the bad seeds or whoever at this point. You want to know why is Nick Cave kicking Jack Barron? It's true. When I... Um, I spent a couple of years on Melody Maker... I was generally pretty terrible there, and then I moved to Time Out. I was terrible at Time Out for quite a long time as well, but one of the great things about working for Time Out was that there was a, a guy on there called Brian Case who used, oh, to, yeah. used to work at uh, NME and Melody Maker. He was a jazz writer, and his features were great for that. He, his features would just start... He, he felt no... He, was so, he had that confidence... And there was a kind of rhythmic kind of elan to his writing, which meant that he could just start just almost in midair, and it was great. And I just learned so much from him. So there are these writers that sort of you can take something from them, and you know they're so important. You know, I always try and make a point of telling them and thanking them. You know. Yeah, that is a good. I mean, yeah, I do that. I carry my hero worship. Of, you know, and the great thing about social media was I was able to find people like Ian Penman. Hmm. And Charles Shaw Murray, who I knew anyway, and just it's great. Just go on there and go. This is something that reminds me of this piece, or this is a great piece of writing. Yeah, I was. Um, I remember I was on a on a. Uh, I was going to LA to interview Beck uh, once again for Time Out, and I'd been to Time Out maybe about three or four years. And um, I, you know, you not so much these days. You get given kind of press packs digitally these days. But I had a big this big sheaf of cuttings that the. PR had given me and I was reading a, um, a Mojo cover feature about Beck um, written by Barney Hoskins and I just remember reading it and sort of thinking if I don't try and get better the game's up because I, <laughs> I've just been I've just been coasting and um, this is just writing and I don't really know how to write like this but if I can at least start trying a bit harder then um, then I, I won't feel like such a dick <laughs> at, the end, at the end of the and I sort of, and I was able to tell him, you know, years later. Yeah, he's great. I mean, for me, and me, there was always a thing that there were two kinds of writers. There were people who were doing it because they loved music and just wanted to tell people, and there were people who were kind of also doing it because they liked writing. Hmm. You know, Swales was definitely one of those. There were a few others, and people like Steve Lamack, not knocking Steve Lamack, he's a very good writer, but he yeah. was doing it because he was obsessed with the music that he loved. Yeah, it was sort of a, a means to sort of yeah. to, to impart the message in a way. And know? he wrote very well and he was very yeah. funny and full of knowledge. But I was much more like, I'll, you know, I'd rather tell lies that, and write an entertaining piece than just go, I'm backstage with Skeletal Family in Birmingham or whatever. Well, you're very honest about that in uh, in uh, in your book, How to Write Everything where in the section on journalism where there's a sort of small section on making stuff up <laughs> and I don't think any other book probably has a section which just sort of, which isn't especially you're judgmental about people who you you it's just advice to people 
who you know if they're thinking of making stuff up they should well you can you remember yeah i quite early on i'd got tickets to see blue oyster cult i couldn't go but my friend simon was a huge fan and so simon went and i just said to him can you write down the names of the songs and anything interesting they say between them and simon did that and also because he was a fan he was able to say all oh, this songs about the beatles and blah 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 so it was a really good review and once i slagged somebody off and i felt so bad so i had a new rule that if i missed the gig i would write a favorable review so everyone's happy that way yeah and the only person who suffers is somebody who bought a ticket to see a band on my recommendation and they were crap but that must have happened all the time <laughs> I did so. That, I, I was quite relieved that you um, said that. I, mean, I don't think I've never reviewed a gig that I've not attended. Really? No, honestly, yes. <laughs> no, I'm not saying really. I don't believe you. I'm saying that's, that's a, quite an achievement. But I have. Um, I've kind. I've, I've made a couple of things up in interviews to sort of both, <laughs> like amuse myself and hopefully amuse the person who I was interviewing. So when I inter- I interviewed the Chemical Brothers once, quite early on in their sort of collective life, and. Uh, you know they're quite reticent interviewees. Mm. They don't really enjoy being interviewed. And and I came away. I, I visited them in their studio in East London. I had nothing really. And I said, "Look, shall I just make some stuff up?" He said, "Okay." And they said, <laughs> "They said, yeah, that's fine." And so I sort of said that they'd um, they'd they'd met at Manchester University. I think that bit was true. But I said that they both in uh, the uh, in the first fortnight of term that they'd. Um, they were they both joined the rowing club and they just met by chance unloading their kayaks from I a think transit I've heard van. this story oh, <laughs> from a transit van next to the humber <laughs> and that they uh and one of them said that he used to be in a jazz rock band called nutter and uh <laughs> and uh they got talky as a result of that and i think that story's been around yeah i think they they were kind of, they started to get a bit annoyed a couple of years later cause people kept asking them about it so they um you mentioned early on uh, the um, you said writers rarely get worse. Um, it's not the case with musicians, though, is it? No, I'm really interested in all the cliches of interviews. You know, like there's always been a dance element to our music. One of my favourite cliches is "This is our best album," because it just shows me again the need for editors, but again that people are terrible judges mm. because the amount of times your your favourite album is generally the band's debut or you know latest their eighth mm. but when someone has been going for years and they go this is it this is the album we've always been trying to make it's like really you don't want to be good and it'll just be some stodge and i'm fascinated by by musicianship that they can it's like can they hear things we can't hear yeah because to me naming no names you know the first the second the third jam album is one of the best albums ever made mm. but like the ninth paul weller album whatever it is is kind of stodgy well, it might be illumination or something like that. Heliocentric. In which, in which, in which case, you you probably got a point. Although you know he he has uh, the good thing about Paul Weller is he sort of you know tries to sort of he's yeah, still he's, trying, isn't he? In that way, he's still not not sort of he's having it's interesting. A, a lot of people. Sorry, when we were younger, you know. Sorry, there's this whole big cycle with artists that they're great when they start, and then in the early days it was like oh, I'm 30. What do I do? And there was no blueprint. So they'd go a bit crap. And then you get people like Bowie or the stuff who go a bit crap in their forties. But then if they live long enough, they'd be good again. Yeah. And someone like Weller, I think, you know, who's I personally don't like his nineties, but I like his two thousands. Do you think there might well with Weller actually, I don't think it's the case. I think Weller is sort of a law unto himself, but I think what often happens is that um 
you grow up in a family typically you leave home and then the first thing that happens is you sort of you create you often create a, a sort of de facto family which can often be a band mm. and you sort of live like a different version of a family mm. and you there are no children there are no rarely long-term partners um you're in a transit van a lot of the time and then and then the the music you make is almost a sort of you know it is a sort of epiphenomenon of all that and um and then but then of course children into the picture and then commitments and then long-term partners and 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 the the vehicles get bigger the basis is now traveling with the roadies you know yeah the basis has got a motorbike generally <laughs> and uh and maybe that makes it just harder to make records that just have that spirit that the early earlier ones had, possibly. I think so. And also there is a rush when you're young. There is an energy. I mean, everybody looks back and thinks, I can't believe I did that when I was 21. Mm. Even if you were just stacking shelves, you think, I can't believe I got up at five. I did this. I can't believe I asked her out or whatever. There is this mad whirl. It does kind of disappear in later years. And it's what? very hard to recreate. What can't you believe you did when you were 21? I was quite... I can't believe that I did actually interrail across Europe to see a then-girlfriend in Italy. And, unless I misremember this, every time I got to a station in Europe, um, it was a four-hour wait for a train. I can't believe I was sitting on village stations in <laughs> Switzerland and Italy. I can't believe that I spent the night, because I missed my train, on Paris-Gardunor station on my own, sleeping under a coat... My change fell out and a homeless man gave it back to me. Because now I would die if I did that. I would lie on the station and a dragon would eat me or there would be an earthquake. But, you know, I was 19. I was, well, I'll sleep on this station. What could possibly go wrong? And I guess but you probably didn't even have a Walkman at that point, did you? <laughs> I did have a Walkman. Did you? Because I did the annoying thing that everyone does. I thought, wouldn't it be great to listen to Trans-Europe Express when I'm on the train in Europe? And I did. Well, and it didn't work because I was going through Switzerland and the mountains spoiled the video in my head. Yeah, and you you didn't have Iggy Pop with you and all that. No, no. So no. That was a bit, a bit of a bummer. I had some very nice Italian families giving me bread. <laughs> that's a, that's an entirely noble thing to do, and that's kind of in keeping with that's what you should do. That you should listen to Trans Europe Express. You know, in uh, when you're going on a train through Europe, that's entirely. Uh, you know, why 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 not? Why pass up that opportunity? Well, I did it, but it's never perfect. You want it to be exactly. Yeah, you want four Germans to cycle past you. <laughs> I did. I sort of went. Um, I, I when I was uh, twenty, I went uh, on, a, on a on a sort of greyhound, well, various grand greyhound buses wow. down the sort of east coast of America. Don't know why I chose the east coast. Most people choose the west coast. <laughs> That's you know, really big fan of Rhode Island. Remains a mystery. Uh, but you know, there were moments. Uh, you know, obviously, I'd I'd prepared assiduously with compilation tapes, yeah. and. Uh, and there were, mo you know, so being being in a in a in a in a greyhound somewhere outside Baltimore, um, listening to good advices by REM, you know, that's that's you know, I was happy that I did, you know, I was happy that I did that. So I have to sort of, I feel like um, I feel like Frank Skinner saying, "No, you won't put your experience of Trans Express down in, into Room One Hundred and One." <laughs> well, I will allow that. Um, but anyway, um, so yes. Um, I uh, so I really I I've obviously I I've, I've, been, I've enjoyed your writing over the years and I and 
So I spent a bit of time last night kind of going through some old sort of favourite articles and um, and 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 highlighting some sort of choice quotes. I was interested mm. to see how much you remember. I was interested to see whether or not you um, you you could indeed sort of remember what you were talking about. Okay, this sounds interesting. Okay. Well, is one of these going to be something like "and I hope he dies" and he no, did I, die? No, I, I, I have no urge to embarrass you or upset you, so I've avoided all of that because one day someone might do that to me, and uh, that I would deserve it. Um, every indie band in the world loathes and despises them. Black Echoes reckon they were doing a major disservice to soul. They are the antithesis of everything that sincere, committed rock and soul artists have ever fought for. Who are you talking about? Is it wet, wet, wet? No. Oh. But the similar era. Gosh. It's a um, good. It's a good guess. <laughs> I have no idea. Okay. It's Stockaken and Waterman. Oh wow! Yeah, I was an early adopter with them. You were, and this is the thing that comes up. And obviously, you were very nice about Kylie as well, and Rick Astley, in other features. I had seen a report on Network Seven about Stockaken and Waterman, and I just thought. Because I had a kind of war, not a war with the enemy, but even in the in the eight was well, in the eighties, around about C eighty six, it was clear that indie was going in a direction I hated. It was opposed to pop. Hmm. It was deliberately kind of scrungy and immature in a sexual sense, and I couldn't see why it was why Stockaken and Waterman were any different to you know not Motown but Bubblegum or all the things that you're allowed to like. Yeah, and also it was just really. It could really annoy people at work. I do remember somebody at work saying, you don't really like the Pet Shop Boys, do you? Who was it? Can you remember who said that? Yeah, I'm not going to say. All right, it was Stuart Bailey, who was a proper punk rock rock yeah. fan. I, I just remember thinking, you don't l deliberately pretend to like things. And now, of course, Pet Shop Boys are kind of classic music, you know. Yeah, of course, but, yeah. But, yeah, people hated them. I guess you kind of... you. I guess maybe you came out of that sort of new pop thing where, you know, yeah. you saw people like ABC and the Human League embracing pop and and the disposability of it and all of those things. And so it, I guess it wasn't... And, of course, you had people like Trevor Horn producing Dollar and using them as almost as a sort of... like a, a Petri dish almost in which to sort of create something pop in a different way. There's a hilarious review by Paul Morley of a Bucks Fizz album when they basically things are going wrong they copied the dollar route because records like handheld in black and white are lovely and Paul basically says about halfway through this has gone a bit too far <laughs> <laughs> I can't get on board with this it's like okay I like dollar I like them and it's like no I can't go to Bucks Fizz no of course now I'm wondering what the album was well it would be about 83 so it would be it might even be the one with Land and Make Believe on it which is a good song we all yeah. like that I yeah think. and apparently it was about Thatcher Really? Yeah. Lyrics by the bass player in Roxy Music and King Crimson. Oh, who, well, Pete know. Sinfield. Oh, okay. Was he the bass player? Yeah, he was. He's on the first Roxy album. Oh, well, there you go. There you My go. friend Andrew Parise, he plays drums on it. Sorry, I'm unravelling now. No, no, it's all it's all good. Um, well, no, that's a, but that's a good point. I mean, I think my only sort of um, caveat with Stock Aitken Woman, I guess, is that... Um, I, I just feel like they almost did themselves a disservice by making some of it just sound so cheap. Uh, but of course, you know, you have to take the Kylie with the big fun, really, and the yeah. and the sort of Banana Rama with the uh, Sonia. You know, they were over proud 
of themselves. <clears throat> their Achilles heel was their talent, which was, yeah, we knock this stuff out, we're a production line. And sometimes there wasn't a love in it. You know, I'm sure with Motown had off days, but there was, yeah. you know, they probably got Motown, they probably got together, enjoyed the day, really made the effort. Some, and there's a couple of tracks where you just think, that's the backing track. <laughs> that failed song by an EastEnders star was recycled literally for Jason Donovan. And the velocity. I mean, they wrote, didn't they wrote two completely different songs called Better the Devil You Know? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Just they opened the notebook and forgot to turn the page. <laughs> and I, did you ever go to the studio? No, did you? Yeah, it was hilarious. It was like there was a... It was basically two spare bedrooms and one was really tiny and that was the vocal room. There wasn't yeah. a band room. Wow. It was extraordinary. The whole building was the size of a decent flat, including wow. the guided missile in the hall that was hanging from the ceiling. What, literally a guided missile? Yeah, because Pete was into that. There may have been a racing car as well. Okay, well, fair, fair dues. I mean, it sounds quite, quite exciting, actually, to me, that, you know, it's almost like a bunker operation, you know. Oh, it totally was, yeah. and they were so aggressive. I remember <laughs> meeting Matt Aitken, at, one of them, at a party once for RCA, and getting his name wrong. If you call me that again, I'll knock your block off. <laughs> And every time he said something, he said, do say that again, I'll knock your block off. That's it was such a 70s thing to say. <laughs> well, they were. They were sort of, they, yeah, they, 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 well, they were from that, you know, they, they're from the, from the kind of age of creme brulee and, and the sort <laughs> of, you know. Um, I'm going to, let's, I'm just going to throw a couple more random uh, quotes from yourself at you and just see if you can remember them. I, re I really like this one. This is from a, a review in 2009 in an Uncut. Wow. It's like having him in the room with you, except your wallet's safe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. So if he's Uncut, then it's only a certain kind of, you know, singer who wears a cheap suit with a with no tie, probably got an acoustic guitar. Oh, God, your wallet's safe. Blimey. It's not even safe to guess who that is. Sorry. You'll be kicking yourself. It's very. It speaks very highly of you that you don't. You don't. You don't remember this. Like you know. It's like you know another, another line will come in a minute. It's. Uh, it's as he likes to call himself, Peter Doherty. Oh, okay, that's fair enough. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's very, very well observed. Um, okay, I've got, I'm going to return to them. I'm going to do one more. I'm going to return to these later. Um, but. Um, who, whose fans are you describing here? It's from a review in 1985. For these people, punk never happened, soul never happened, YouTube and Simple Minds never happened. For all I know, World War II, the invention of the internal combustion engine, <laughs> and votes for women never happened either. Oh, God. Is it the Enid? <laughs> okay, that's a wild guess. Is it Queen? That's a bit closer. You were at the Hammersmith Odeon in 1985. Brass does, Construction. Does that help? Well, I saw Susie and the Banshees there. That's not them. Brass Construction. Hammersmith Odeon. Indeed. Nope. Okay, well, there's Brian Adams. Wow, I saw Brian Adams. <laughs> Do you not have no, well, maybe you didn't. <laughs> I've interviewed <laughs> if, him. Uh, you've interviewed him. What was he like? Oh, he got ratty because I did the classic journalistic mistake of asking him if an urban myth was true. Which was? The urban myth is the one that he dis so disliked the noise from the pub next to him that he bought it and closed it down. Is it not true? According to... There's some kind of sleight of hand. It did close down and he hated the noise, but it wasn't his fault. He didn't do too much to stop it. No. Yeah. He... Brian Adams. 
Oh, I think I, I remember that gig because Motor, I think Motorhead supported, but it was weird because it was a Motorhead anniversary, so they had all their guitarists on, and you think all is for a support. <laughs> that is a bit odd. That's a bit. I guess maybe it was the the association. Maybe he wanted that kind of credibility by association with with Motorhead. Oh, he was. I read a biography of him once, and it was interesting because he's kind of like I want to be a pop star. I want to be a rock star. So sometimes he's quite metal, and sometimes he's quite showbiz. So it's a bit like Jason Donovan being in Pantera. <laughs> well, he wrote "When You're Gone," so we can great, great song. We can forgive him most. Did he write that? He did. Oh, he, I think he might have co-written it with someone else. Who, that back, makes sense. Because person. Because I'm well. I'm not entirely sure. It sounds to me. It feels to me like it was written very quickly. When you're gone, because it has that momentum, that velocity. Doesn't I it? love songs that were written quickly. It's one of the great music things. Is like, and then the record company said there was no single, so we got our heads together. And it's like, well, yeah, of course you did, because you weren't writing an album. You've like, bam, one song. Yeah, yeah. And you're going to get sacked if you don't write it. Well, yeah, and that was, uh, you know, and loads of loads and loads of bands have sort of saved their skin, sort of that way. Because I think, famously, um, Elbow wrote one day like this, uh, just. Because their their label boss said, "I just guys, I just need something that I can take to radio," and of course, so you know, there's something to be said for that. Of course, you're very, mis- you're quite understandably mistrustful of authenticity or yes. meaning it. I've written a novel about it. Which one? <laughs> oh, yeah, no, it's a, it's a bit weird this because yeah, I wrote a book and I got a, a book deal with Titan Books, but I'd also written a book and didn't know what to do with it. An unbounder bringing it out. And it's a bit like when you're on an old label, so it's coming out, the Unbound book's coming out in January, and the other book, the Titan one's coming out in April. Okay, so I mentioned, so we mentioned the April one, we'll come back to, what's the one that's coming out in January? It's called Go West, it's named after the Pet Shop Boys song. It's about authenticity, I mean, it's, it's a sort of a, a road movie thriller about a man going to identify, to authentic, authenticate a document, but it has this idea in it, and I'm well keen to talk about this. Hmm. I used to, sorry, I used to love John Peel. And then I found out you can download old John Peel shows off the internet, whole shows. And then suddenly I had the idea that what if you put it back on tape? And then she just gave me this whole thing of faking. So you get in a car with someone, they put on a tape of a Peel show. And you're like, wow, this is great. And then you suddenly realise that it's digital. So I got this whole obsession and the Pet Shop Boys are in it and they did a John Peel session, which is insane. Just well, they actually did do They it. did one, yeah, oh, towards the end of his life. Okay. And what they did was really cool, was they just did a load of songs that they'd never recorded from the early days. So that was almost... That, so in the, so that be, so if they had they been asked... Yeah, in 1984. Be, that's what they did. And they did a Bobby O song. So you've got this great moment with John Peel going, now we've got a song originally recorded by The Flirts. It's called I, know, I Want a Man or something. But yeah, so in the book I changed it because I, I also put some deliberate lies in because hmm. it's all about authenticity. So... In the session, they do go west, which they did, never did for John Peel. But I've forgotten what I was talking about. Authenticity, yeah, it's yeah. all about... And my central plank, I'm not going to name this label because they are a, a rival label to certain other labels. But I once read a piece in Record Collector. This label, like a lot, does a lot of reissues, does a lot of box sets, and they do blues box sets, and they source rare photos of blues artists. Yeah. And what they do is they put them in the computer and they clean them up. But they found that the pictures were too clean. So do you know what they did? They oh, aged yeah. them again. Wow. So they fa- they take old photos and they make them look fake real. This is a bit like Alan Lomax uh, g- getting Leadbelly to sort of 
dress up in like dungarees or yeah. whatever or prison clothes when he wanted to wear a suit in his photographs. It's just, but it is a kind of people want their they want their authenticity mediated, hmm. to use two Latin words. Yeah, it fascinates me the whole thing of and a good game to play. I discovered when I was researching the book, if I wanted to write about something, a place like there's a house in Exmouth where I grew up called Alarond, which is a weird house. Put that in Alarond. Then I put in the word fake. Or I was a bit about J.M. Barry in the book. Put in yeah. J.M. Barry, fake. And every time you put in a search term and the word fake, you will find a really weird fact. Uh-huh. Try it with anything, you know, the jam, sausages. <laughs> and I found, you know, J.M. Barry was involved in a famous forgery. I found out that Alarond is involved in a famous lie. It's quite bizarre. Forgeries and fakes are everywhere. That's a, I can I can see that, yeah of course that that would that would figure in a way although obviously it's it's now you say it it seems that that would that would be that's a whole series of rabbit holes. It's a lot of rabbit holes. You can go down. Um, okay, so we're here, obviously we're here at the headquarters of Ace, and um, where I asked you earlier on uh, about some of the, some of your favourite releases uh, on the label, and uh, one thing that caught my eye was you mentioned machine cut. <laughs> Machine Gun Etiquette by The Damned. And I think they're a, they're a, they're a group who I think, weirdly enough, are still kind of incredibly underrated in, yeah. in the history of... I guess, do you agree, and why do you think that might be? I think they're hugely underrated because, coming from comedy as I do, I'm always slightly hypersensitive of anything that's dismissed because it's funny. Mm. The Damned were funny. You know, they dressed up in silly clothes. They had comical names. They had the kind of names that kids give themselves when they're pretending to be punks. You know, Captain Sensible, Rat Scabies, that sort of thing. And they weren't deathly humorless like The Clash. Clash just had no sense of humour. The Jam didn't really have a sense of humour. The Sex Pistols did, but we liked them. The Damned, you know, I mean, they're, they're also survivors, which is nice. They, every, they've had loads of line-ups. And for the, their peak period between 77 and whatever, 87... They had three or four lineups, and each lineup came back from the dead. Yeah, yeah. Produced something brilliant. Do you think we, you mentioned the, the sort of contrast uh, uh, with the Sex Pistols and the Clash? And what sort? Uh, just as you say that, it strikes me that the, the obviously the Sex Pistols and Clash were bands, but they also they were also ideas. There was sort of there was a fundamental idea that rep- that represented mm. the Sex Pistols and the, uh, ditto the Clash. The Damned weren't really... A, a, there wasn't an overarching idea that, behind The Damned. Do you think they suffered a bit from that? Well, yeah, they didn't have... They had a silly image. Hmm. I mean, the Stranglers had a silly name, but it was threatening. Hmm. Susie and the Banshees, you know, were... Let's just say it. They were goths. So, you know, Susie and the Banshees and The Damned were both hammer horror. But Susie and the Banshees got... You know, Staircase Mystery. Ooh! Old Playground <laughs> Twist. Ooh! You know, but they were always a bit more, you know, dead babies than anything else. Whereas the dam were all always more joke shop rubber hand. True. Well, Susie was just kind of a terrifying character, and I think that there was that sort of. And Steve Severin, obviously, that's a made-up name. That's a very cool made-up name. Yeah, he wasn't called Steve Knob. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. Everyone had cool Jean-Jacques Brunel. All right, that's his real name, but yeah, they had co- everyone had Johnny Rotten. Sid Vicious. They were kind of funny, but yeah. not that funny. Captain yeah. Sensible. And I sort of feel like 
bands such as the you know the damned who are you know the greatest crime in a way is to just sort of get together and make music for the love of music and even if they're very good at it which they undoubtedly were um then you know they're not perceived as anything more than the sum of their parts and i sort of once in a while you sort of get that don't you you get sort of i i feel quite you know in it's a bit like erasure and the pet shop boys yes yeah, I love Erasure, but they're always going to be seen as, I don't know, the Argos Pet Shop Boys or the Little Yazoo. <laughs> but they're a wonderful, wonderful group. But because Andy Bell dresses up and yeah. is quite camp, you know, they've never really got any recognition. You were quite quick onto them, weren't you? I think you re- reviewed them before they, you, in, you interviewed them before they even had a hit. Oh, God, I remember hearing Sometimes. It's just such a great song, and Ola Moore about that time. Yeah, it was my first trip to America with Erasure, which probably says a lot about my music career, that my first trip to rock and roll America was with Erasure. But a wonderful band, yeah. I guess that people weren't competing with you at NME to do the pop stuff, because it seems like you had that kind of sectioned off for yourself. Yeah, and it was a wonderful time for that, because my heroes, Danny Baker, Julie Birchall, Paul Morley, Ian Penman, had all loved pop. And the NME, until that point, had always been a mixture. Hmm. You know, I mean, not pure pop necessarily, but they'd always had a mixture of the things. And during the era that I grew up in, people like Adrian Thrills would write about the Bunnymen and Madness. And there was no real differentiation. So when I came along, I was like, everybody wanted to write about... When I started, it was an awful guitar band era. People like Green on Red and Dream Academy and the Long Riders and just these... And also, if I'm honest... The Dream Syndicate. Dream Syndicate, thank you. And also heavy things like... The birthday party and a lot of bands, a lot of gothy Australian bands. Yeah, I mean, I guess you know, they're, they're, it's understandable in a way that a lot of music writers would want to, you know, would err towards artists who are at least, you know, on kind of nodding terms with the Grim Reaper, or at least purport to be, uh, <laughs> because it's sort of, you know, I guess it's. It's kind of, you know, it comes back to that authenticity thing about that sort of, I don't even know what it is really, because I don't really, I don't I don't think I ever really bought that at the time, that these I people were more profound just because they'd injected heroin or whatever. It was a real come down time. You know, we'd had the excitement of punk, we'd had all the new pop thing and two-tone. About 1983 was just a bit eggy and grim and bed city. I was in a bed sit and it fit. John Peel was playing. Billy Bragg was probably the most cheerful music. And the Smiths. Goth had come along. But I remember working for the NME and having a big argument with somebody. We'd all seen Tom Waits at the Dominion. Yeah. And having a big argument about how fake it was. You know, about he's pretending he's not a real tramp. And what, you know, where, where did you stand on the divide with Tom Waits? I liked Tom Waits then. I've got a little bit bored of him since. Yeah. You know, most of his music is heating pipes now. But... Yeah, Swordfish Trombones was great, but I think it was the moment he stood up from the piano and he tipped his hat forward over his... Oh, oh, what? This is just acting. It's hard, though, isn't it? Because someone... Tom Waits is one of those people who... um, who I sort of think about in... in trying to work out what I think about authenticity and people who are sort of faking it and do I care, do I not care? I sort of... of, because he's someone who clearly was kind of tr- practicing to become this character for a long mm. time, wasn't he? 
and um and ultimately i think i realized i don't think I, I don't think i care if it's really him or not and actually maybe if you pretend to be someone for long enough maybe he kind of maybe do become that person i don't know yeah and he did become that person and even when he'd stopped drinking he was still that person he was just the records were less good but he was clearly a lot happier and better and he's great and it doesn't matter but i think what always annoyed me was when things are pushed as authentic. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't really care either. But I remember around that time, it was short, well, Dexys had the Don't Stand Me Down album out, and they were really mocked for it because they were wearing suits and golf clothes, and it was considered inappropriate attire. And it just fascinated me that three years before, they'd been wearing d- gypsy dungarees, and they, yeah. that was considered fine. And before that, they'd been dressed as characters from Mean Streets, whereas now, oh, they're wearing suits, and they were evil. And I could not understand why one was better than the other, and that seemed to tie in with Tom Waits. And there's this kind of thing that David, and when I've been a student, David Bowie was not rock. Yeah. And I thought, but this is great music, this is brilliant, whether it's Heroes or Ziggy Stardust, whereas, you know, some idiot would be rock, and it's just, I don't know, I was a bit too hung up on these distinctions well you're right though you know because and the, the the worst thing about it though is it kind of it sometimes th- this um, whole discourse can just get under the skin of a perfectly good pop star and then just make them jettison all the things we liked about them in the first place and you know Kylie's an example of someone who suddenly decided that she had to make the, the sort of edgy damaged record uh, which was probably her second deconstruction album Mm. And you saw that, and you know, like a couple Manic Street preachers tried to write a couple of songs, and then in doing so, realised actually writing pop songs is a bit harder than we thought it was. <laughs> Some you kind know. of bliss. Wasn't very good, was it? No, it's not great. So the one they did for Shirley Bassey was excellent. Oh, what was Girl that called? Girl from Tiger Bay. Yeah, there were some good songs on that record, weren't there? Yeah, yeah it's not bad at all. Um, so yeah, I thought you were going to say, "Now let's hear it." It's a th- it's a thorny issue. I'm gonna. Um, we're gonna, I've got a couple of uh, your two, two of your three other plum ace picks. I'm going to return to the second one in a minute. I want to lob a couple of other sort of quotes okay. uh, at you and see if you can remember um, what piece they came from. He throws back his head and laughs as only a man who hates Croydon can. Bowie. Yes. David Bowie. That's one of my. Yeah, it's probably my best interview for millions of reasons. Really? Go on. One, I met David Bowie in New York, and I always say this, afterwards I'd been smiling so much I literally had a trapped nerve in my mouth. <laughs> I was in real pain, because I was just looking, I would have shagged him on the spot. I was just, could not believe I was, well, where he, you are now, that close on the edge, of, you know, on the corner of a table. And because I was from Q Magazine that day, I was obviously a relief from, you know, the previous European or whatever journalist. And he was in an expansive mood, told me loads of really funny stories, ignored all my boring questions, which suited both of us. Mm. But yeah, I'd done my research. I discovered he just had the Bowie net up and he'd written a huge article about how much he hated Croydon. (laughs) He did seem to be in incredibly good form when you interviewed him and uh, seemingly generous company. Just lovely. I asked him, you know, I asked him about Bing Crosby. He said, oh, yeah, it was like the day before he died. He said, like... He looked like a little wizened orange. (laughs) He did. I mean, he's one of these people that did, you know, when you see him interviewed elsewhere, he did seem to understand exactly what expectations people had of David Bowie, but also how to 
uh, undercut them and find them as funny as uh, to sort of almost satirise those expectations in a way. Well, he knew how to do a Q interview. He knew that it would be light, mm. but also that the people doing it would know his music. Charles Shamurri once said, never ask him a question that could be answered with the word yes, because he will agree with you. Right, yes. I mean, obviously there's exceptions to that, yeah, but yeah, yeah. he would go, that's exactly right. Right, okay. So I guess he just kind of, well, he clearly, I mean, that is a very good interview, and you sort of, um, you, you know, like you said, you were clearly a relief from the previous guy. It'd be very hard to do a bad Bowie interview. You know, the trick with interviews is if you want to do a bad one, don't listen to anything they say. Mm. Which is also <coughs> something you dwell on in, in the book, which I do uh, genuinely recommend for aspiring Thank writers you. because it's um, it's sort of a very funny book about how to... I mean, that's the um, books about how to write are not usually kind of where you expect to find the laughs, but um, oh. you seem to amuse yourself terribly in writing it. It was kind of revenge on an imaginary... <laughs> everything I do is revenge on an imaginary enemy. <laughs> which What enemy would this be? I don't know, some imaginary writing book, I think. I'd done a lot of writing courses, and there is so much... Because my obsession with this book is the writer's room. You know, it's like all these Sunday Times articles about, oh, and I have this pen that belonged to Hemingway, and a feather from a seagull, and I have an inspirational quote. And I just go with Stephen King, you know, who wrote in a trailer with his wife and nappies drying on a fire and his yeah. child. It's a bit... Uh, yeah, I remember seeing a, a documentary on Geoffrey Archer once, and he very... He, he, just so delighted with himself. He sort of... He showed the kind of... The, the TV crew, the guy from the TV crew, round his sort of office. He had a kind of immaculate uh, writing room overlooking the Thames, and he kind of showed you... He had this kind of very, very tidy desk, and he showed you these pens lined up and exactly <laughs> how they lined up. And you just, oh, my God. Yeah, it's just wrong. Um... What's this from then? <clears throat> Huge plates of rare steak arrive and surrounded by vegetables and some plums loaded with curry powder. Yeah, Queen. Queen in Hungary. Do you Queen remember those Hungary. plums? No, but I've read that article so often that yeah. I, I remember... Because for years, I, yeah, every time I've written something, I've researched, I've back-researched that article to put it in because it's my best anecdote, it's my longest anecdote. I forgot about the plums, but I can still remember Roger Taylor's jokes. Can you remember one? Can you share one with us? Or no one will it? get this now because of the years. It's like, did you hear that? That boxer got attacked the other day. Tim with a spoon? No, with a knife. I don't even know if there is a boxer called Tim with a spoon, but I think... I think it rings a bell. There was a, with a, a boxing with a spoon. With that, that. So quick, the, the, the notable thing about that article um, was that they were... Most of the band were kind of trying to avoid you, weren't they? Yeah, they hated journalists, and, you know, rightly, they hated the enemy because even when we liked them, the enemy had done a headline saying, is this man a prat? What, with Freddie? Yeah, Roy Carr had written a picture of Freddie on the cover, you know, classic live shot, and the headline was, is this man a prat? <laughs> it's not entirely necessary, is it? Not really, but... um, And then there'd been the Sun City thing, and this was the very political enemy yeah. in about 85, and Queen had been really heavily slammed for that. Mm. And but Freddie was quite happy to talk to me off the record. He sort of dealt with it better, didn't he? Because he let you sit next to him in in a, in a in a car, and he did. He made quite look. It seemed seemed to make quite a loquacious sort of small talk with you, whereas the others not so much. Well, the others were just John. Yeah, I mean Brian May was nice. I feel a bit guilty because we weren't very the press party. We weren't very nice to Brian May, but he was really friendly. Huh. So, but we just kind of ignored him. We literally ignored him. We also had colds as well. There's no excuse. But yeah, Freddie, I mean, I've always really liked Freddie Mercury. I don't like Queen, but You're I not. love Freddie Mercury. No, I just... 
might be generational, but you know, this is my mantra. ELO, Queen. There's something about the 70s semi-rock. I've got Queen's greatest hits. I like about half of it. But I see, I find this hard to sort of get my head around that you could love, you know, maximalist, um, harmony multi-tracking, um, ultra-melodic ELO, and yet you wouldn't like maximalist, multi-tracking, harmonic, grand-sounding Queen. Well, I don't really like ELO. You just said you did. No, that was a, well, that was a misspeak. No, <laughs> okay, I have. Don't. I've got a double ELO compilation. I've got Queen's greatest hits. Right. I enjoy playing them, but oh no, it's just. I think it's a moral thing. I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, it's like you're Amish and you quite enjoy secretly listening to your Walkman and watching telly, but you're against it. I've got okay. a moral punk attitude. Have you never been okay? You've, you've never been kind of blindsided in a kind of crowded bar or something by just oh, oh absolutely loads i will sing along to don't stop me now you know there was a time when i loved mr blue i love that album out of the blue so i'm contradicting myself because i have a contradictory attitude wild west hero is one of the best songs ever written yeah but elo is a concept right. it's a bit like racists who go you know like i don't really like foreign people but you're all right hans <laughs> if i met jeff linus i don't really like elo but you know what Wild West Hero, that's all right. I'm sure he'd be very gracious about it. Um, but you, here's another band you don't... You, you really dislike Blur as well, don't you? Um, I just like the idea of Blur. But yeah, I've never... I don't love Blur. I've got Blur's greatest hits, but I can't play it. Why not? Because I just can't put it on. It just comes off again. Is it something to do with him, do you think? I think it is, Dame. There's something odd about Dame, and he is literally the sting of Britpop. <laughs> What, it was, it was weird. Sense? Just, it was weird at the time because you'd go out when they were on the way up, and he would always be very aloof. There's something about him, something not humorous. Yeah, yeah. When I met Nick Lowe, this is a weird anecdote. He has a game, and it's called something like Funny Not Funny. You pick two artists. One's funny. One's not funny. Say, Bob Dylan, Neil Young, funny, not funny. Graham Parker, Elvis Costello, Graham Parker, funny, not. And I think with Blur, it's like. Noel Damon, funny, not funny. <laughs> which one's funny and which one's not Noel's funny? Noel's definitely funny. Oh, so they're actually funny people? Just as, yeah, I don't think Damon's funny. He's not fun. I like girls and boys. I think it's brilliant. And maybe, again, it's an age thing that I was hanging out with a lot of journalists who would just go, oh, God, pop scene, man. And it's like, I hate pop. Is it called pop scene? I hate pop, pop scene. Is not very good. Pop, pop scene is one of those songs that sort of journalists seem to... I think maybe because it wasn't a very big hit or something, and maybe... It's a sort of statementy kind of song. But yeah. There's but not much fun of, as a song to listen to. I don't think it's much fun, to be honest, that one. They had better ones. There's loads of good stuff. I like This Is A Low, which you have to like and all you that kind of like, thing. Yes. And I like Graham now. That's that's an age thing. You used to get on very badly with Graham. Oh, yeah. No, I've said this to Graham. I've said, you know, Graham, you know, it was, um, you were, every time I met you in the 90s, you were horrible to me. Since, and he just kind of sheepishly looks up at me and says, yeah, I'm really sorry about that. It's, it's fine. It, it, um, let's go on to the second of your um, ace selections. This is uh, Conflict and Catalysis, uh, John Cale Productions and Arrangements, 1966 to 2006. Why did you choose this? I chose this because, I, well, I really like it. Um, it's a great series of songs produced by John Cale, but also because he's one of those people who doesn't have a map. You don't go to John Cale because you're like, I want to sound like this. Mm. You go to John Cale because he used to be in the Velvet Underground and Lou Reed won't do it, if we're honest. 
but he's got an attitude. Have you ever met him? No, I'd love to have you. No, I think he's quite scary. I think he can be quite scary. He's my, I have one great John Cale story. I had a history teacher at school called Griff Thomas who was quite a mentor. Yeah, he was a really important person in my life, really funny, very camp Welsh guy. Mm. And he turned 80, and a friend of his wrote to me and said, do you have contact for John Cale? I'm like, why? Because when Griff was at primary school, John Cale used to sit on his knee on the bus. <laughs> Sadly, I did send a message to John Cale's Facebook page, but never got a reply. <laughs> well, was John Cale, like, smaller and frailer? Yeah, he was very little. Griff was quite small. He's not as frail anymore. He's not as small, is he now, John? He's sort of made up for it in the interim, hasn't he? Well, he's got his, he looks great now. He's got this kind of Jeff Goldblum wizard face with a slightly scary beard. He does, yes. I had to, I, yes. I, it's a shame that he never had a perm at any point because it would have been because <laughs> he could have called himself Curly Kale. But um, <laughs> you went there. Oh, sorry, um, but it is. Uh, looking at the track listing of this, it's like a bewildering track listing because there's nothing that unites uh, these artists. So you've got Susie and the Banshees with Tearing Apart, and you've got Squeeze, uh, you know, all the uh, with a couple of Squeeze. So he did Slap and Tickle was one of his, wasn't it? Was it? Because he, he did the Squeeze album that's got weird things on it, not Sex Dwarf, but. Yeah. There's some slightly odd for Squeeze songs where they're trying to write songs for him, almost. That's right. And then we've got Nico, obviously, and Pablo Picasso by the Modern Lovers, which he covered himself as well. And then things like Disco Clone by Christina. So, Happy Mondays. I mean, imagine yeah. that. And the one that's not there, which annoys James King and the Lone Wolves, who were just kind of a lost band for me. In fact, he didn't produce them, so delete that in my head. Okay. But yeah. People got him in. It's like it's like that famous story about Nick Mason from Pink Floyd producing The Damned because they wanted Sid Barrett. Oh, really? <laughs> so they got Nick Mason instead. Did he? He did, didn't he? Yeah, it's a, yeah. It's the second album, Music for Pleasure, which is one of those ones that I've gone back to because it's actually good. It just doesn't sound like the first album. There are the you have these moments, these unlikely sort of confluences because there's another one is um, Graham Goldman producing a Ramones album. That's right. The KKK took my baby away. We want the airwaves. It's very good. It is very good. It's just... It's just what they needed, personally. I thought that was a pun, then. I thought it was no, no, Nick no, no, I just think uh, the, Ramones, uh, the Ramones and Graham Goldman, I think, is a, is a sort of very uh, good combination. Um, so, um, let me um, move on. So, here's... This is from an interview you did, which I, I, I really did love. Um... Even in relaxed hotel mood, even in relaxed hotel mood, she looks as though she's preparing to go out and destroy Italy. (laughs) I'm just laughing because I have no eye. It's either Liza Minnelli or Susie Sue. I'll I'll read you another bit. All right. Um, Okay. Um, Italy. uh, You've just told this artist that you have bigger breasts than they do. Grace Jones. Can I, re- I can I read this back yeah, to you? Yeah, A tiger-like fire ignites in Grace's eyes. I love big breasts, she roars, leaning over the seat, and begins to vigorously knead my chest into a bloody pulp. I decide not to mention my bottom. <laughs> that was, oh, God, what a night. Though that was in a Grace Jones in Italy. Grace Jones in Milan or Turin, I think it's Milan. We've done, we've gone there, me and Derek Ridges, for a PA. It was the maddest everything. Her personal assistant... 
was an extremely camp guy who'd been in the Navy and suddenly said, yeah, I, I, I met Ronald Reagan once when I was in the Navy. Really? Yeah, I was on acid at the time. <laughs> he said, okay. And then, yeah, Derek Richards, the photographer, did what he always used to do, which is make me take a picture of him with the artist. Mm. As he did so, Grace Jones pulled her pants down, exposing her lower regions. Wow. And I said, just said, I can't help it. I'm the, I'm the daughter of a minister. <laughs> There's a picture that Derek took of me and her, and I am so drunk. I'm like a bush baby. And she's sat next to me looking absolutely beautiful. You are, yeah, you, in the piece, you do sort of sound kind of bewildered and smitten, I have to say. I am. And then we're in the limousine, and shortly after the big breast conversation, a female fan crawled, because it was a very narrow car, crawled into the limousine, crawled over us, shouting, Grace, Grace, I love you. Grace Jones threw her out and kicked her down the street. Literally, it was a hill. The woman literally, in my mind, rolled down the street, still shouting Grace. Grace Jones was going, go away, go away, F off. And that's the thing, it's kind of okay because it's Grace Jones. And life is unfair like that, isn't it? Because I think it just, we all feel instinctively that Grace Jones can do that because she's Grace Jones. Yeah, if my mum did it, she'd be in jail. Yeah. But also, to be fair, a woman had just crawled into her cab, but car, but... No, it's, I mean... Grace Jones is the is the kind of interview that you think everything will be like, whereas most of the time you just end up in a pub in you know Highgate talking to somebody who has no interesting opinions. No, well, what would what would be the ant- antithetical scenario that you must you would have been in that the 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 first one that springs to mind? First one that springs to mind is a bit unfair because I was in Paris, but it was my birthday, like my birthday. I think it was my thirtieth. We were in Paris, and I was with Thousand Yard Stare. I was obsessed with them. And they were perfectly fine. They were a perfectly all right indie rock band with some reasonable songs. And to be fair, I was interviewing them, so I was supposed to talk to him. And the singer was telling me his opinions about life. And I just thought, I don't care. I have absolutely no interest in anything you say. <laughs> and that was when my... Around about that time, my life started to change direction. I became more of a comedy writer because I just yeah. reached that point where I thought, why am I just writing down what other people say? What a was weird he, what job. Was, it, was he holding forth? He was holding, I remember some of it now because he was talking about red pillar boxes. Right. I think they were on the way out in his mind. <laughs> and he was quite kind of, I think it was a bit kind of Britpop. He was like, oh, I really miss, you know, red phone boxes, red pillar boxes. Right. I was thinking, I don't. I don't care. I'm, I <laughs> I've checked out. Yeah, it's a letterbox. It's a phone box, you know. No one so, will be using them soon. Well, it's nice to think that thousand. if they're on the off chance that they're listening to this, <laughs> it's nice to think that they were a catalyst to, to, for, for you kind of broadening your your sort of creative horizons. Maybe that will kind of afford them some uh, a, a, a minor feeling of joy. They'll be known for that. In the, if they are listening to this, they're probably thinking he's going to do that story again about how we ruined his birthday in Paris. <laughs> But so was that was so was it as simple as that did you sort of think okay I really need to sort of I'm gonna you know if I'm if I'm st- still at the NME when I'm 40 or 50 then um, this is not going to be good for me not quite that but I was terrified because it was like there was again no template what do you do when you're a music journalist and you hit 30 the idea that there would be this career path where you went to Q afterwards and then to Mojo and then to Record Collector, which is an exact description of my music journalist career path. The idea that there would be way stations and they would say, we're waiting for you now. And, you know, a nurse at Record Collector would lead you into your desk and your drip. That was, 
it was like, what did you do when you were 30? Because you, your life was a parallel of that as a musician, you know. I guess you grow old with your readership. I mean, that's, that's you know, if nothing else happens, that's kind of a nice thing. That, it's you know. lovely to go to a gig and be recognised and someone says, I really like your writing. Mm. And you think, they must mean Veep or They actually mean something you wrote for the NME. That's really nice. And it's do you someone... know what to say? It hardly ever happens to me, but on the rare occasions it does, I'm totally lost for words. I Yeah, I just saw, I used to get annoyed when you meet famous people and they never say anything good. Um, not that I'm famous. But yeah, I was, all I can think of to say is thank you. Then I noticed that when you do meet famous people, they tell you a vaguely related fact. So I always try and think of something like saying, oh yeah, Neil Tennant was really drunk that day, or yeah. whatever. And the thing I always used to do, which fails, is that because they know my name, I always say to them, what's your name? And that goes really badly. I've just done that. Because they just don't want to tell you. And, I've, I, and I, I'm, so, I'm so kind of maybe unnaturally preoccupied with um, trying to make sure that people think I'm not a horrible person. I might sort of overcompensate. So some, um, <laughs> a very nice man came up to me after, the, uh, after a, a teenage fan club concert at um, the Electric Ballroom a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, and he was sort of, and I, had, I, I, had sort of, I was parked a couple of streets away. So I was kind of walking, he was walking. And I just thought, well, I should just carry on talking to him and, until, mm. you know, we sort of part ways. And, uh, and so I asked him a couple of questions about himself. And then I, I think he sort of, in the end, he sort of made an excuse and said, well, I guess I'd better be getting home then. <laughs> and actually walked in a different direction, which, uh, so I was kind of wondered why he walked in that direction in the first. So I kind of said, maybe I need to ease off a little bit here. But um, anyway, let's go on to your, your, the third of your uh, selections. Um, Linkray, would I have had you down as a Linkray fan? I'm not necessarily sure, but tell me what the appeal is. Well, I wouldn't have had myself down as a Link because Linkray to me is kind of 50s, cramps, that sort of thing. Authenticity, things I don't really like. But then I got sent a compilation. You remember when Virgin Records had a big anniversary about five years ago and they did all these massive self-congratulatory but brilliant sets? And one of them was like, basically should have been called Mad 70s Stuff We Did Because We're Mad. Yes. And it was everything from, you know, Mike Oldfield to Steve Hillage. And there was a Link Ray single on it, very out of character because they don't have a lot of American acts. Yeah, I don't remember Link Ray ever being on Virgin. But and it's go. called, I think it's called something like I'm So Glad, I'm So Proud. And I could not believe it. It's extraordinary. It's recorded in a shack, which is the kind of thing that normally annoys me. And it is just just like it's just thumping it's just guitar and drums and a cheap piano and a shouted vocal and it's the most exciting thing i've ever heard you know and i'm in my mid 50s it's just is it well we can, we'll be able to hear a bit of it as well because um it's the bonus track on this oh great uh, on this ace compilation which is comprised of three albums link ray mordecai jones and beans and fatback and but we got it ends with that track i've never heard it it's, no, I mean, I'd never heard of it. I don't know anything about Link Ray apart from the early stuff. You know, my Link Ray collection is Rumble, the Batman theme, and yeah, this this album, which I never play, I just play that track. And there's a single version as well, so that's probably it. But yeah, it came out on the Virgin label. It's extraordinary. It is the kind of thing that could, as the Rolling Stones said, make a dead man, well, walk. So what is it? Is, that, is it the sort of primal kind of energy? Is that, what you, is that the thing? Totally. It's like everything's racing to catch up. So, you know, you're excited by the drums and the drums are about to overtake the guitars that are about to overtake the bass, if there is a bass. It's like, it's like p punk is described as. 
Right, yes. And when you listen to punk, you think it's not quite that. That's true. You know, you, and you often, you often get that. You have to go back in time to really get a lot of the sort of stuff that that um, punk, as you say, is is described as. You know, often something like, um, you know, have you ever heard uh, "Hold On" by Sharon Tandy? No. Oh well, I think uh, I think that's. I would imagine that probably exists on an Ace compilation. I'll have a look for that. Um, so it's the it's the sort of freak beat band Fleur de Lis who. Um, who are doing a song? So doing the song that they did a number of songs with Sharon Tandy, and so it's essentially, you know, a sort of aspiring sort of pop female singer, you know, accompanied by this kind of slightly ramshackle freak beat band. What's not to love? It's one of my. <laughs> I'll send it to you later. It's fantastic. I'd love to hear it's it. amazing. Um, okay, so where are we? So I'm going to give you. I'm going to throw a couple of quotes to you, and then I just want to briefly ask you about some of your some more recent sort of TV work. But um, I'm. Go- Let's see. Uh, who who are you writing about here? The sound of a group trying hard to prove that they are a group. They were better off doing what they were told. Oh gosh, is this? Oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. Is it Bros? No, no, and uh, I, I think they'll be very upset if you, if, if you, they thought you. Uh, oh. Shall I tell you? Yeah, go on. It's the second Frankie Goes to Hollywood album. Oh gosh, Ray Child, Liverpool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was. I'm a bit more in favour of that album now, but oh. I like Ray Child. But yeah, it was just was it? not great. Your use of the word grunge in 1986 is very impressive. Really? Yeah. Well, grunge is a word. Yeah, not a very often often used word prior to that point. But um, it's a grungy album. It's got a grey. They were so. They were so. Yeah, you know, one of my recent discoveries is this whole thing of bands. Someone says, "Why are you doing this album?" The answer is generally, "So it's not like the last one." Yeah, yeah. You know, if the last one was expensive, the next one is cheap. So everything about this is the opposite. It's a single album, not a double. The first one is really colourful. The second one's really grey. The first one's great. The second one's terrible. So on. I did. There was a bit of me that admires the band that try and make an album exactly like their previous one because it's just it's like the exception to the rule. Um, I do quite like the idea of a band. Well, the last one seemed to be very popular and sold very well, so we thought we'd try and do that again and not really upset anyone. But it's weird. I did a record collector column about this. How that never works. So doesn't work often, does it? Day at the races, night at the opera. It was the other way around. That sort of thing. It's like there's a lot of controversy about this, but I think Aladdin Sane is not as good as Ziggy Stardust. It's mm. just a... You know, there's so many albums. Like, my syndrome... I even, for the writing books, one's got a yellow cover, one's got a red cover, because I was obsessed with the first two B-52s albums. <laughs> and they're the same. One's got a yellow cover, one's got a red cover. They're exactly the same, except one's better, because it's like No More Heroes by The Stranglers and the first Stranglers album. The second one is just the first one, only with the songs that were left over. Yeah. I think, I think you're right, and I think there's a sort of... there's a. There's a there's a there's a psychological law that um, that, that that perhaps knowingly or otherwise is being adhered to here, and Radiohead are very good at this. I, th- I think they're they're sort of very good. At, it's almost a bit. I think for a, a healthy creative relationship between a band and its audience it has a slightly dysfunctional aspect to it a kind of slightly treat and mean keep them keen aspect to it mm. so bands that make an album that's sufficiently different to the last one to show that they're not too scared of losing their fan base 
but nevertheless don't completely jettison what they were doing before. That's probably the right balance and sort of... It's a hard one. I like Andrew Partridge's thing that if you want to know what someone's next album's going to be like, listen to the weird track on the previous one. Yeah. Because yeah. it's like all of his albums, he says, there's always one song recorded near the end when they're a bit bored with what they've done and the next album will be like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think that that often... Well, that's certainly the case with Radiohead a lot of the time. That's... Um, um, I was just going to ask you about a couple of... I just want to ask you... A couple, we had a brief exchange uh, recently on Facebook where, and I deliberately didn't follow this up because I wanted to ask you about it today. But when you told me that you'd been to Five Star's house... Yes. So for people who don't know, Five Star were a kind of sibling group. There are five of them, uh, briefly successful in the mid-80s, came from Romford, managed by their father, Buster. Take it away. Yeah, the Pearson family. And they were modelled slightly on the Jackson 5... And they had some really nice pop songs, nothing massive, but some really good stuff. But there was always that kind of odd thing about a family group. And a family group, you know, well, like Paul Weller, there's always something odd because they've never flown the, n the nest. There's a lack of independence. And they were so like the Jacksons that famously Stedman, the male member of the group, got into some slightly sex-related trouble. <laughs> we can say that on... Yeah, I, I think it was about that. What was, what was he alleged to have done? I think it was importuning. I don't really know what that is, but I think he was in a toilet with, with somebody else. Okay. Um, I don't know if anybody was... But anyway, yeah. yeah. And he was also quite like Michael Jackson. So I went to their house, and it was... If you if you like Mike Lee, and I don't, it's a sort of Abigail's party house. It was nouveau riche. Mm. You know, it was people who'd got money and hadn't bought the things that you're supposed to buy. And I it was pretty sure that there was some cellophane on the furniture yeah there was a dining set that obviously cost more than it should have and the thing i remember was that they had video cassette cases shaped like books you know sort of white leatherette with gold trim and i remember they had something i've always kind of really coveted but would never dare buy which is a brass butterfly bookmark you know the one shaped like a bishop's crook and yes. they've got like a diamante <laughs> butterfly on the end an enamel one and it was a fascinating house because it was so on it was so we've no. just got some money and spent it and they did. And did they all live there? They all lived there. And I interviewed Stedman in the bleak dining room, which was quite a small room, but with a very again new dining set. And he was very Michael Jackson. He was very eyes darting around the room. Didn't want to, you know the kind of thing when you have interviewed them on a tape recorder and you can't hear anything because of the hiss yeah. is louder than their voice. Yeah, I've met him as well. He's a he's really? a very quite an eccentric character. Yeah, I met them at the kind of the the one of those. Um, Rewind to eighties nostalgia oh, wow, tours, yeah. yeah, and that was I. I, so I, I spent a couple of days on the road with them, and um, Dollar and uh, Claire Grogan and Kim Wilde. Oh uh, yeah, what a what a weekend that was. That must have been extraordinary. It was it was extraordinary because there was a, a kind of a camaraderie between most of the people there. I think people were kind of amused by Five Star. Uh, Teresa Bazaar from Dollar was a bit too full on and she really took against the Human League who um, <laughs> who obviously had only sort of agreed to do it for money uh, and were appalled that things had come to this. Um, so, and Teresa, I remember Teresa Bazaar just cuttily going, they just think they're so much better than everyone else. They just sit in their, their bus all day. They don't talk to anyone. <laughs> I, 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 I did a, I did a thing about one of the Here and Now tours. And yeah, it was Human League and Kim Wilde. And I think 
I can't remember who else was there, but I remember the Human League saying, we've got our own band, you know. Yeah. It was very, very important to them because everybody else was coming on with the session band and doing the hits and the Human League were like, this more like their own gig. Yeah, they really, they really basically sort of made it look as much as possible like everyone was supporting them. And then there was a kind of intermission and then they came on with their own stage set. But um, that was the only kind of pretext upon which they and would... Uh, they're, proper, they're proper northern early 80s post-punkers. Mm. You know, even the girls, as we used to call. So, you know, they've got a bit of attitude. Yeah, and it must be hard to sort of, you know, compromise. Obviously, you've got to make a living and you get to a, a sort of point where your conception of what you are is doesn't entirely kind of correspond with what makes money and what pays the bills. And that's kind of... And some people sort of are accepting of it. You know, I remember um, Claire Grogan telling me that she resisted it for the longest time. And now that it's a bit like the five stages of grief, at the end of it, acceptance always comes, you know. Yeah. Um, and the Human League never quite got to the acceptance bit. but They never were. I went to see OMD, as we must now call them. And it was weird because they did their own set. It was really good, obviously designed for a larger venue. But I was the one affronted because I was really enjoying it. But there was a group of basically beer monsters there yeah. who just, their OMD was Telegraph and the big hits. And they shouted, you know, when they weren't punching each other and mating, they just shouted all the songs at top volume. And part of me is just still kind of, you know, Oxfam greatcoat stood there at the back going, oh, when a Joy Division on. Yeah, it's funny, and you know, so Twitter's quite good for that because you know, it's I do, I quite like it once in a while when you see uh, musicians who might have been rivals at the time, who've sort of those rivalries have been kind of eroded by time, and actually they sort of realise that maybe they, there was more that united them than separated them. So maybe like Tracy Thorne having a conversation with Kim Wilde, yeah, or, or, or you know, and it's something, and that's very sweet. I think when you sort of see that, but you know, I still would rather they hated each. Actually, no, yeah. Kim Wilde's all right. I remember a long thing by Danny Baker and the enemy explaining explaining why Kim Wilde was morally superior to Toya. It was quite tortuous. Yeah, I mean, you, it barely needs explaining, really, does it? Not really. Uh, there, was a, there was a certain snobbery involved that Kim Wilde was clearly worked in Woolworths, which is a bit ironic since she's actually a showbiz dynasty and Toya was clearly drama school. Yeah, although I think she had a fairly earthy upbringing. There was, um, I remember um, watching a very, sort of quite a tragic documentary, uh, a Man Alive documentary from 1972, I think, about a child star called Darren Byrne. Except that, well, a putative child star um, mm. who, who EMI were trying to sort of break uh, on the back of sort of Donny Osmond and whatever. But it wasn't just about Danny Byrne. It was about they followed the fortunes of Darren Byrne, a, a, a brother and si a, br two, a brother act called the James Boys, and Ricky Wilde. Right. And Jonathan King was managing Ricky Wilde, and um, and Darren Byrne was ba basically they signed this kind of this boy from. Um, a tw 11 or 12 year old boy from New Southgate called uh, Darren Byrne and his dad worked for EMI so he's just basically the son of someone who worked at uh, EMI and um, and he it didn't really end well for him I mean the documentary might be out there on YouTube somewhere and I recommend that people go and see it because it's quite dark and depressing mm. but fascinating but um, Ricky Wilde's in it and compared to the others Ricky Wilde so Ricky Wilde I think also growing up in Edmonton or somewhere like that and uh, 
much happier child. And mm. there's this there's this footage of basically um, Marty, who's you know it's in the early seventies, so he's kind of he's grown his hair long. He's got this kind of elaborate comb over, and he's in a he's got these kind of Elvis kind of jumpsuity kind of shirt on with kind of huge flap away collars, and he's in the garden mowing the hedge, <laughs> which is this perfect like midpoint between you know sort of being Marty Wilde pop star and just being a dad in North London nice. it was very sweet anyway um, I just want just briefly I just want to ask you about some of the things you, I mean I can't believe how productive you are really I just want to fire a couple of things at you because I know we're running out of time um, you've written for the dandy which is <laughs> a, the stuff of dreams how, how on earth did you end up writing stories for the dandy that was weird it was there was a proper showbiz moment was they gave Harry Hill a strip in it where he was Harry Hill and he was their lead figure for a while, which just tells you about the power of Harry. Yeah. Hi, readers, Harry Hill here. And I forget, he couldn't... I think he did the strips. He wrote the stories himself with somebody else for a while, right. but there wasn't time to do it. So for a very... I blow this up a lot. For a very short time, I wrote storylines for the Harry Hill strip in The Dandy. And it was great because you can't write that and not think of this now. Yeah, of course. And did did it come easily? Did you did you enjoy it? Was it okay? It was. I don't think I was very good because I think it was too cliched, and also probably they were old fashioned. Now that you know my children are older, I read the Beano and buy it, and they do a pretty good job of mixing mm. the old with the new. And I w I was no good at that. It's amazing, isn't it, that sort of um, that Dennis the Menace still exists and. Just the, I I don't I don't know how it's possible to to have come up with five thousand or however many different storylines on a weekly basis for Dennis. How can that be? It's extraordinary. It's I guess you just get good at it. I'm fascinated by British comics because I remember reading the Penguin Book of Comics when I was young, and then pointing out to my horror because I was young that they don't have comics in America that they have comic books, they have superheroes, yeah. and they used to have silly things and romantic stuff and whatnot. But the idea of a weekly comic, and they barely exist now. Yeah. Now my kids just want basically Paw Patrol because it's got loads of plastic Paw Patrol gifts or yeah. Octonauts gifts. But yeah, the idea of a compendium with like, you know, rhyming name boy and rhyming name girl. And they have adventures and they're like, go, oh, I'll get you. And silly things happen. I used to make my own comics when I was uh, up until wow. about 10 or 11. Cool. Um, well, I never used to finish them. I just loved the idea. Cause, well, well, I grew up in, in a fish and chip shop, so I had infinite access to paper <laughs> which i would fold over so i would fold the chip paper over once cut it down the middle fold it over again and you had an instant blank comic so brilliant what was not to love really um but uh yeah i almost feel like they should sort of do do you remember in 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 the 80s where the the records used to come with like free t-shirts and other gifts and stuff yeah. and then they sort of banned it happening and uh I wonder what would happen if they did that with comics, because then they'd have to try harder to make the comics really good. But they're just kind of a, a thing that a the sort of a, a gift is attached to these days. I yeah, I mean, I miss the old god when you could be excited by a plastic toy that broke in seconds. Mm. I miss that. But yeah, no, I so I I um 
when my kids were a lot younger, I realised that actually McDonald's are legally obliged to sell you the toy that comes with a Happy Meal <laughs> uh, without necessarily having to buy the Happy Meal. Oh, really? Yeah. I th- and and it, it, they're always rich. It used to be about a pound or something because my kids only ever wanted the... Yeah. I mean, they, they go to McDonald's. They, they learn to love it now, but they didn't at the time. Um, and so what's the situation with... So you were... You've also had huge success as kind of part of the writing team for The Thick of It and then for Veep. And I remember a photograph of you proudly holding up the the Emmy that you all won in uh, in 2015. Um, that simultaneously sounds to me like the most thrilling and terrifying job. Well, not in the world. I, I would say no, like a fireman is probably a scarier job, yeah. but nevertheless. It was amazing because most of it is just like a job. You know, you might be in America, but we were in Baltimore, which is not a sexy town. Though annoyingly now I don't write for Veep, they make it in Los Angeles and drive around on little golf carts in the sun. Mm-hmm. But we were basically in a very cold, wet city with a lot of homelessness, and you'd be in a windowless room. Right. Um, but yeah, so it w- and then the Emmys were just absurd. They let, you know, they Jenna, my wife, came out with our baby. We took mm-hmm. one child. Cause mm. it was funnier and yeah nice hotel and you go to the Emmys the only thing is you go to the Emmys and who do you see James Corden and Ricky Gervais it's like was already worth coming because <laughs> so I'm so old I don't recognise most of the stars no, no. and you... then the high point for me well everything was a high point you're getting the Emmy and then Mel Brooks presenting us with the Emmy and Mel Brooks coming up to me and saying I love your show and shaking my hand oh my god and that was like I haven't got time to tell you about yes. your career yes yes and the bit I always remember is that afterwards we came off to, to be photographed and we had to go in a line down a corridor with our Emmys. And Alison Janney, who's a you know brilliant actress, she knew some of the cast. So they were at the front and she would kiss and hug someone, then she'd kiss and hug someone. And then she was still there and she'd ran out of people she knew. But she was still... <laughs> com- so when it came to my turn, she had a really sick... And I thought, I'm going to do it. So I kissed and hugged Alison Janney and she looked sick. Oh. Rightly so. But she couldn't really turn her back on anyone. No, of course, of course, you know. But you know, it's. Uh, I'm. Sure, I think I've. Uh, I've had a. I've had similar moments where you just don't. You know, you interview someone famous, and you're not quite sure if you're expected to go in for the kiss or not. Yeah. It's hell, isn't it? Really. It's very. I kissed Kylie, and in retrospect, it was an error. <laughs> did, did she? Did you know? Did was her, did her body language reveal this to be so? Um. Yeah, it was kind of, she just pretended it hadn't happened. Um, David, it's been an absolute delight. Thank you for staying awake and engaged through what's (laughs) been a very uh, long uh, but very enjoyable interview. It's all Uh, been about me. I've loved it. Well, that's that's as it should be. I really enjoyed that. Thank you very much. See you again soon. Take care. Thank you for listening. Cheers. For more excellent music, you can scoot over to the Ace Records website, www.acerecords.co.uk, for all the wonderful music you can possibly need.